welcome everyone to the fifth episode of psychom series podcast by chrysalis israbhopal today the topic of discussion is climate change research governing public policy making climate change has been described as truly complex and diabolical policy problem climate change is a new risk that is big global long term persistent and uncertain together these five descriptors make it a threat unique from any other it thus poses an utterly novel challenge for public policy making to discuss the same we have with us professor ishan chaturvedi and mr arpit chaturvedi professor ishan chaturvedi is an environmental and energy lawyer he completed his llm in environmental law and policy from stanford law school where he was selected a rising environmental leaders fellow ishan is a practicing advocate in the supreme court of india founder director of environmental public policy consultancy mvpol co director of the global policy diplomacy and sustainability gports fellowship and a faculty member at the jindal school for environment and sustainability mr arpit chaturvedi is an author and strategic management professional with a master of public administration focused in government politics and policy studies from cornell university and an mba mba in hr from symbiosis center for management and human resource development he is an experienced development consultant with a demonstrated history of working in the public policy domain and is the co-founder and ceo of global policy insight a multinational think tank working on democracy and governance policy innovation and international political economy he is the co-founder and chief strategy officer of envipol we are very honored to have you sir i am s trisha and i am joined by anirudh arora hello thank you so much trisha and anirudh okay sir to begin with uh, let us talk about envipol you describe envipol as a company that bridges the gap between sustainability and public policy within the field of environment how do you envision that to happen <clears throat> that's a great question uh, trisha first of all let me let me thank all of you for putting this together i uh, really appreciate uh, ventures that are driven towards creating awareness creating knowledge uh, creating a conversation i especially appreciate ventures that are student run uh, that shows that the future is bright for us especially when you're dealing with topics such as sustainability and the topics that we're dealing with today uh, it also shows that future is bright and future is uh, is continuous uh, which wouldn't happen if we do not have a sustainability approach which i'm sure we'll touch upon as we go ahead so uh, thank you for organizing this guys i also like to uh, thank arpit for joining in it's always a nice uh, feeling to be uh, a part of a panel with uh, someone who you can rely upon when it comes to knowledge you don't have to impart on the of the all the knowledge yourself and arpit is around he takes care of most of it uh, <clears throat> it's it's the biggest challenge of our times one of the biggest challenges of our times uh, trisha what you've asked how do you incorporate climate action in policy and before uh, tries to do that with uh, multiple approaches multiple verticals of uh, uh, systems thinking restructuring uh, training skill development uh, compliances all of those things but we need to take a step back and go behind the idea of why and what now when i say the greatest challenge i say it with uh, an absolute understanding or at least a substantial understanding of what sort of challenges we facing especially with you know international conflicts going all around a pandemic that is that is still uh, up and running uh, but we must realize that every generation has its own biggest challenge you know one peak zenith it has to overcome uh, in the past it has been you know a world war or uh, spanish Uh, flu and uh, plague and and a bunch of other things uh, as well and each of those challenges come across to that generation as being a fight for survival for that generation climate change 
is no different in the sense that it is posing itself as a fight for survival for our generation. But in as much as climate change generally is compared to other challenges that other generations have had to face, we are not just fighting for survival of our generation. We are fighting for survival of every generation that will come after us. And that is why it poses itself as a multidimensional challenge, uh, a challenge that needs us to relook at economics and markets. It needs us to look at social, sociology, uh, philosophy, and ethics. It needs us to relook at our politics and governance, of which uh, Arpit is the substantive expert. So I'll defer to him to speak on that. Uh, it needs us to relook at science and the basis of our actions. Are they scientifically viable? Are they uh, long drawn yet uh, impetus ridden? And it also then goes back to a very, very innate human tendency of whether this works for me or not. You know, because a lot of the times for most of the solutions we are stuck with, yes, it does work for the world. It probably works for the future generations, but does not uh, using a plastic cup or not using a plastic straw, not littering on the street or uh, keeping the wrapper that you've unwrapped your candy from, uh, putting that in the pocket, does it work for me? You know, these are very, very small transactional costs. When you add all of them up, it makes an individual uh, impact the climate consciousness of the world. So, for all of that to happen, you're basically asking someone to make an apple pie from scratch. And that's the analogy that I usually draw on this, because when you're making an apple, when you ask, so for example, I ask you, Trisha, to make an apple pie from scratch. What you'll do is you'll get some baking powder and you'll get some flour and you'll get some apple and you'll get some sugar and you'll put it all together and bake it and you have an apple pie. But who defines what from scratch is? Does it mean that you have to grow your own apple? Uh, does it mean that you have to have your own flour? Does it mean that to grow that apple, you have to invent your own seed and invent, invent soil and invent atmosphere for the soil to grow in and invent the planet for the soil to have a home and invent the solar system to have that planet and invent the galaxy and the universe? And you can keep on going back in that apple pie analogy. And similarly, to invent this apple pie from scratch of climate change, climate action, climate finance, climate governance, you have to go back to the big bang of human civilization and start changing things from that point onwards. So there are no easy solutions and I wish I had a substantive answer to your short question, but I, I, I doubt if I do, I don't know if Arpit could add to this. Absolutely. I think Ishan has given quite a comprehensive answer about uh, how we thought Envipol is an important organization to be around. And see, my uh, position on that, just in addition to what Ishan has said, is that we typically hear a lot of activists talk about climate policy. We especially see a lot of the younger generation taking action protesting on the ground, uh, living uh, you know, uh, new and alternative forms of lifestyles uh, to be sustainable. But at the same time, what we don't see uh, is at the mass level, a number of these things being translated into public policy. We have a number of uh, climate-related policies, of course. Uh, we have policies coming all over the country, all over the world, actually, on electric vehicles, on solar panels, uh, on water, number of these things. But uh, we don't have any policy, for example, uh, with relation to uh, you know, the lifestyle choices that we would uh, make or climate action per se. Sometimes we do have policies. So for example, a number of states in India, they have uh, policies around uh, you know, how do you harvest rainwater, et cetera, et cetera, where people can take individual action or, you know, your rooftop, horticulture, agriculture, et cetera, et cetera. But those policies, even though they are there on paper, they're hardly successful on the ground. Similarly, there are a number of policies uh, such as, you know, uh, 
the the courts have banned uh, you know, uh, the practice of throwing untreated industrial waste into the rivers, etc. But still, all of a lot of these things are happening on the ground. Okay, so our where we come in is to bring, uh, and this is almost like you know we uh, think of it in terms of uh, there's this thing called a triple helix model uh, in systems thinking, which essentially means that you need to have the government, you need to have the industries, and you need to have the research come together to bring about a particular change. And it is only then when these three things come together, you understand that, okay, if rainwater harvesting is a policy, why is it not being implemented? Do we have the right research on it to draft that policy? Do we have the right capacity to implement it? Or if businesses are still polluting, then what sort of things are required for the businesses? Because even the businesses want to move towards a sustainable uh, you know, sort of a regime. But uh, they have to be working with the governments, they have to be working with their customers, they have to be working with, you know, uh, all of these uh, international compliance regimes in order to be able to easily transition into sustainable businesses. How do they do that? So a lot of these things are there in the idea space, some of them are there in the policy space, but in the implementation space, we don't have that triple helix sort of coming together. So our job essentially is that in many ways, we are ecosystem engineers. We will get all of these uh, things aligned together. We will get, uh, you know, the right research with the right government and the right industry connections and make them have a conversation to implement some of these extremely hard problems that we see. So essentially, the problem that we are looking at is a problem of cooperation. It's not as if there's not enough research on these things. There's so much of research happening and uh, there's obviously a lot of research waiting to take place, but we do have, uh, you know, uh, science that you can trust. Similarly, there's no dearth of will on part of the businesses or on part of the government to make this happen. Uh, also, there's no dearth of policy capacity or implementation capacity with the government. So you have everything and still it's not working out. And the reason why it's not working out is some of these factors not coming together. So the aim over here is to uh, bring all of these together and to make them work in sync with each other. So that's the idea. Yes, yeah, sir. I mean, like connecting the dots and making the flow a better, more streamlined is really important in, in such conditions. Yeah. And like, as rightly said by Professor Rashan, that climate change poses a big risk. And in, in some sense, also, it provides us with the opportunity to work together. And this, like, what I believe is that this is where the public policy comes in, that we have to, using those policies, we have to reduce those risks that has been uh, imposed by us by the climate change, as well as take advantage of the policies. And till the time these dots have not been connected, it's, it, it's really tough to do do both of these things that the problem that we are facing right now uh so like <clears throat> yes sir you no i was just it. saying that uh certainly what you're saying is right that it is a risk as well as an opportunity and i think that you know with each risk there comes uh you know some sort of an opportunity i think what's missing over here again uh as i said is that a, even in the youth, you'll see a lot of uh, ways or, or a lot of will to work towards this and, you know, to get together and to, uh, you know, uh, cooperate on some of these agendas. But uh, beyond a few tweets, beyond a few articles, beyond a few protests, and all of these are important. Trust me, these are, you know, not just important, but critical. Uh, but beyond that, I think there's also a lot more uh, action that the youth can bring to the table uh, than what's happening right now. Yes, sir, definitely. Like that's what majoritively happened. Like recently the COP26 uh, session took place and the social media was boomed with the whole trending news. And then after a, like after at max few weeks, everything was just vanished. People were posting stuff and then they all disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, given the uh, current climate crisis, uh, how crucial do you think that climate science research is in policy making? Well, uh, 
I'll let Ishan answer that, but I think that it is absolutely uh, crucial because, see, we are also in terms of policy making, we are in a very new age. Uh, in India, uh, if you look at things, you know, uh, rewind uh, 30 years and you really did not have a culture of uh, making evidence-based policies. I mean, it was usually an afterthought, but not an organizing principle. Uh, similarly, globally, it wasn't until, uh, you know, uh, late 60s, 70s, where evidence-based policy making became a thing per se. And when we're talking about evidence-based policy making, the only reliable way of collecting evidence that we know as human beings is science. And uh, it's only through science, whether through, uh, you know, pure or applied sciences or through social sciences, it's only through that that we can be sure of the evidence that we have. Because, uh, you know, unlike uh, many other philosophical ways of knowing the truth, uh, you know, uh, in India, traditional culture talks about many different ways, even in, uh, you know, uh, research methodologies, you're taught about you know, finding the truth in many, many different ways, including inference, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. When you talk about climate change policies, what matters is not inference, what matters is not, you know, uh, comparison, but what matters is evidence. And that evidence comes from, uh, you know, pure heart science and uh, becomes really important. But I'll let Ishan uh, add something to this. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I think uh, that really uh, sort of summarizes what is needed and why science plays such a major role. I'll just give you uh, a couple of examples that I, I uh, use in my lectures or otherwise to explain how science works in the climate space. So. First of all, let us understand that uh, I think it was 1809, 1809 uh, AD, that uh, a Swedish uh, physicist in the Journal of Physical Sciences, I think it was, I'll have to fact check these, but uh, this is what I remember. Uh, he talked about the impact of carbon in the atmosphere. So it's over a couple of centuries since we've known this. It obviously came into prominence in the last 40 years or so. But the two stories, two anecdotes that I want to tell you about, uh, one is from this place called Kumagaya in Japan. Okay, now Kumagaya in Japan is this lovely little town northwest, I think, of uh, uh, Tokyo. Uh, if you Google it, you'll find beautiful cherry blossoms and beautiful photos and, and you'd want to go there. Now, something happened in Kumagya in July 2018. Okay, so the first week of July, uh, you had floods and torrential rains and mudslides and, you know, terrible things happened. Uh, and then around the 9th of July, uh, there was a bit of a heat wave. Japan started heating up. Uh, 23rd of July, uh, Monday, uh, the heat wave in Japan uh, touched around 42 degrees, the highest temperature ever recorded in Japan. Okay. 73,000 people, uh, that's the conservative estimate, uh, were hospitalized. Over 1,000 people died. And now, on the 24th of July in Japan, uh, the Japan Meteorological Department, whatever the name is, calls it a natural disaster. Okay. Now, this is very important because heat wave is a natural disaster, right? Let's take another anecdote. Now, exactly 365 days later, there's July 2019 in Europe. In Paris, if you want to take uh, specific uh, examples, there was a warning issued that people should stop traveling out in the open. Okay, in July 2019. Uh, the chief architect of Notre Dame uh, warned that the extreme heat could lead to cathedrals, roof falling, uh, collapsing, if the joints and masonry is uh, holding up the roof dried out. 
around 1500 people died from what I remember. And all of this happened all across Europe. So the, uh, the Met Meteorological Department conducted a study uh, in 2020 that found that the UK was now 30 times more likely to experience heat waves compared to three centuries back. Now, a lot of people argue that, listen, heat waves have existed since time immemorial. And why do you create a big issue every time there's a heat wave? Well, the fact of the matter is that exactly to what you mentioned, Anirudh, in your basic introduction, uh, when you said that it's a global issue. Now, climate change is a global issue. It's a global issue and a local issue. So locally, Kumakia experienced a terrible heat wave, loss of lives in 2018. Uh, the UK, EU, uh, experienced a terrible heat wave in 2019. So these are perfectly explainable, localized, natural disasters, right? Attribution science, which is a paradigm of science that looks at how much can you attribute climate change uh, for whatever is happening, gives us the ratios in which that heat waves would have happened 200 years back. So it isn't like lead waves did not happen 200 years back. They're just 10 times, 15 times, 20 times, 100 times more likely to happen now. So that's where science is almost, almost you know, sitting us down, holding us by the shoulders, shaking us up and saying that, listen, this is happening all around you. Do something about it. And what do we do? We call it, as lawyers say, force majeure, act of God, natural disaster, and we wipe our hands off it and we walk away. But the fact of the matter is that, is it any longer a natural disaster? Is it happening, nat happening naturally? Is it like an earthquake that tectonic, tectonic plates move and an earthquake happens? No, it's now attributable the floods and famines and droughts and heat waves and mudslides and landslides and glacial recessions are sea level rise, all are attributable to human action towards putting more carbon in the atmosphere and human inaction in doing something about it. So that's where the science comes in. And there are two concepts to this. There's a concept of capacity and there's a concept of culpability. Humans are culpable to lead us where we are today. And that is something that all of us should shed our hubris about and, and face the mirror and say that, all right, we have generationally contributed to this. The second is capacity. And that's where Envipol and, and what Arpit was talking about comes in. Do we have the capacity to do something about it? Uh, you can be uh, someone of a Malthusian view and say that, listen, Population grows exponentially. Food grows in a linear way. We will run out of food eventually. So there's no point doing anything about this. You know, let's just enjoy and, and spend all the carbon that we have. Or you can be a population optimist and you can say that, no, no, uh, we can do something about it. And the fact of the matter is that there is capacity. There is capacity in tech. There is capacity in human resource and economics and carbon markets and financial markets generally. And most importantly, there's capacity and skill. Now, what we need to do is meet that capacity with what Arpit was saying, with implementation on ground. I also want to take a moment to appreciate that human beings have historically not done uh, anything that does not benefit them in the short term very rarely done things that benefit them in the short term, uh, not, uh, which do not benefit them in the short term. So there's an, a significant element of a, a branch of science, by the way, of behavioral psychology economics that comes into play that will help us make decisions that, are, that appear short term, but will benefit it, uh, us in the long term. An example could be an ecocentric end through an anthropocentric means, right? So how important is science? Science is now telling us that, listen, do something about it. This has been happening for the past 250, 300 years now. Science is also telling us that this is how you could do it, you know, change your behaviors this way and, you know, implement more 
startling means to realize your carbon footprint and and every time you fly your ticket should read your carbon footprint for taking that flight but it's the consciousness awareness education implementation that requires uh, to meet that warning sign that has been put up by the science and which which and i must commend the wonderful work that's happening on the climate science front to to make us aware of these things Yes, sir. The incidents that you highlight, it, it is clear that there's a climate climate emergency now. That uh, of like twenty years ago, what we said that in twenty years, if we don't make a change now, in twenty years, this all will happen. We are seeing it now. We are seeing floods, droughts at the same time happening in places uh, in. Uh, on a very extreme scale and all of it and you uh, as you said so science is telling us it is telling us that like this is an urgent issue and we need to listen so are we listening what do you think is the current situation regarding such policy making and how is it impacting the human race okay just one thing before we get into that uh see i think as human beings we've put in a lot of deadlines uh, and we have been gloriously uh, you know unable to meet any of those and uh, i think there are two ma major issues in uh, the way that we frame the whole uh, you know climate change and the broader sustainability debate one is that if we look at uh, you know end dates if we look at deadlines and this is one thing that i cover uh, in a game theory lecture that i deliver at the gpods fellowship which by the way i think you guys should uh, check out uh, the thing is that whenever you are playing a game this particular climate change game is also a game of cooperation wherein uh, you know just like you don't litter in a place which is clean and you litter in a place which is already dirty so in the second uh, scenario what you typically think is that why should i pay the cost of not littering when uh, you know uh, or or just carrying that wrapper in my pocket and uh, walking for 2 kilometers to find the next dustbin when uh, me not taking that action uh, is or uh, me not littering is still going to keep the place dirty because others are littering so i typically think that you know the i will stop when the others stop doing it okay and that's what happens in climate change as well that we typically think that i will not do it uh when the others stop doing it as well so uh, you know uh, i will uh, you know have a more sustainable uh, lifestyle when everybody else does it it's not as if i can stop using my car these days it's not as if i can stop traveling if i have to you know uh travel or uh, go let's say uh, to the us then i have to i cannot uh, let's say board a ship and do that i just don't have that sort of time so when everybody starts uh, you know making those choices i am going to start making those choices so we fail to cooperate and uh, you know we are stuck in that sort of a equilibrium where everybody is not cooperating because everybody is not cooperating yeah with climate change now when you have an end date when you have a deadline to this what typically happens and there is a huge game theoretical explanation to it which i am not going to get into right now that wherever you frame things in a manner which has deadlines you would not see cooperation because you would get people to essentially think that okay it's anyway going to end in let's say 2050 and i know that uh, you know if it is going to end in 2050 nobody is going to take much action until then so why not just keep living the way that i am living or do the minimal so that i don't look like a bad person and eventually if even if i correct myself it's not as if we are all going to survive in 2050 or beyond that so let me just you know uh, keep living the way that i am living okay or just take the uh, path of least resistance now on the other hand when you uh, and again i'm saying that i'm not going into the uh, you know precise game theoretical uh, explanation because that's a longer one but when you think about infinite games and that's just a property of cooperation that when you think about infinite games so you frame the situation in a way that we are not going to be an entity which would cease to exist uh, it's not a deadline that we are looking at 
but we are an entity which is going to be there in this nature forever and if we are to live here forever then it's better that we live under conditions which would suit us or under conditions which make at least living bearable okay uh the second issue that i have so that's the issue with the deadlines and i think that as long as we have deadlines we are not going to we are going to be uh, gloriously missing those deadlines every time we have the millennium development goals now we have the sustainable development goals we'll come up with a new term every time okay so we're not good at cooperative racing we are good at competitive racing as human uh, species okay now the second thing is about this whole idea behind sustainability because i typically think that the issue that we have is that we somehow have framed sustainability as degrowth that okay we'll have to do something lesser then uh, you know we'll have to live in a manner which is lesser than what the previous generations have lived with okay so if we would consume less we'd have to be a lot more careful life would be lesser than it has been earlier and we need to get away from this mindset because the way that sustainability works again you know uh, a game theoretical explanation to that would be that if you frame it in a manner that you know if you live sustainability you would have a life which is better than any time before it's going to be so good that you haven't had uh, you know that sort of a level of consumption or level of uh, happiness utility whatever uh, unprecedented you'd have never seen that before only then so in game theoretical terms people would cooperate when cooperation becomes really really lucrative so we need to frame it uh, you know in a more positive manner as well uh yes yeah, so like i i would like to add it to it is that like when when we frame these deadlines the, the deadlines are so framed that the people the normal people believe that it's the work of the bigger corporations and the big people to work on it like reducing the whole of the carbon so people believe that the, that's not my work that i i go to office how much carbon would i be contributing it's the work of a bigger company but that is not the exact case they they should be made aware that not not buying plastic water bottles or uh, switching your, your toothbrush to a wooden one these small acts in a bigger population could lead to a drastic change that these bigger corporations could not have been able to made in that particular deadline amount so absolutely i would just like to add i hope i don't sound too pessimistic here but there was a 2017 um, report i think it was a cdp report that just 100 companies are con have contributed to 71% of global emissions since uh, 1988 so when we look at such statistics when we look at corporations going unchecked and absolutely not uh, caring about sustainability or the or the damage they are causing it it feels like does is it really uh, is it really creating an impact of me am i really creating an impact by using a wooden toothbrush instead of a uh, instead of a plastic one uh, so it is so the situation is so bad that individual uh, initiatives won't matter in the long run or in and the broader picture so what would you say about that like why is it important that i still continue to take initi initiatives on an individual level like last year we saw the ocean on fire like we did not think we would ever see that and when you see something of that scale you really sit and think is it really mattering that i am i have been using i have been trying my best to use environment friendly products and such but is it really mattering so what would you say about that how can we keep our climate consciousness so trisha that's uh, an excellent point first of all and something that uh, all of us have dealt with at some point in our life about climate pessimism climate optimism i am an absolute climate optimist uh, at the global policy diplomacy sustainability fellowship which the gpods fellowship which you guys mentioned or put mentioned uh, we have a rule in my lectures that we uh, look at climate change optimistically climate action optimistically and how we can change it now about your larger question about you know the private sector and and how they can make a difference and how little we could do there 
in law there is there are two concepts there's a concept of a natural person there's a concept of a legal person a natural person is you me person who's born a legal person is say a corporation which could be sued which can sue but you know you have to remove the corporate veil to see who is really taking uh, the decisions at some point of time we need to stop blaming natural persons which are our creation for hampering the environment right now every system every organization has a role and has a motive right you can tomorrow blame the government that you know why are they making this new policy they are there to make policies that's what governments do right why are they governing us they they are literally called government government they will govern that's what they do now private sector what is it there for it is there to make profit for itself right if i if anirudh and trisha both of you tomorrow get together and you want to start a company and if i tell you that listen i love the idea of a company the only catch i have for your company is don't make profit because it will harm environment would you go ahead with the company no you would not because the point of that company is to make profit the missing piece in this whole argument against the private sector is that private sector is not driven by profit motive of itself so it's not making money of itself it's making money of you and me so the end game in this whole puzzle is the consumer is the customer of that private sector which is offering a particular good a commodity or service so how do you change consumer behavior for the private sector to change its behavior in such a way that it becomes more sustainable so you can blame a fast fashion company and at the same time you can order 50 pairs of jeans in 5 years that is not how it could work you cannot blame uh you know uh, a car company that's known to be a guzzler of fuel and then drive it and have it as your dream car so once you make enough money i'll be driving that car and and you know so the issue is not at least this is what my uh, this is how i see it issue is not with profit making issue is not with the private sector issue is how we can convince the private sector and that's the gap we need to bridge that listen as a consumer i am only going to buy sustainable products right i am only going to engage with services that are carbon footprint footprint free and that's the onus of the society because my my fear is that you will absolutely let's use the word degrowth you'll start on a on a uh, on a uh, path towards degrowth if you start demonizing all the private sector organizations that you know you haven't done anything and now you're expecting me not to litter again like that person is supposed is literally incorporated to make profits it is making profit you are incorporated to live a sustainable lifestyle and you have an issue with not littering so change our behaviors that will be reflected reflected in market trends which will change the market again there's a reason why it is called the invisible hand it is you and i that guide the hand it is the market that guides the hand so uh, demonizing the private sector for what it does is not right without understanding that there is a gap that needs to be bridged either through circular economy or through sustainable choices or sustainable pricing of uh, you know a very good point here is if we buy a pair of jeans right it costs us 1500 bucks 2000 i'm talking in inr for those of us who who are listening in from other countries but if we are uh, buying you know 30 dollar 40 dollar 100 dollar 500 jeans pair of jeans do we realize that each pair of jeans takes anywhere between 21000 to 63000 liters of water to make and do we realize that a lot of the times these jeans are pair of jeans are manufactured in places which do not have which are facing water scarcity and have we paid for the value of the jeans or the cost of the jeans 
is the value of the genes the cost of the water that went into making it or just the mrp that you're selling it for and those are the considerations that you and i will have to have so the 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 answer to this the short answer to this very very long explanation is that customers and consumers and people like you and me need to know the value of a certain thing and then be ready to pay the value of that certain thing because you know again there we also need to realize that a large part of the population global population you know anywhere to the tune of 40 50% of the global population cannot afford what products are being sold as sustainable products you talk of a wooden toothbrush how many people can afford a wooden toothbrush what is is a plastic toothbrush i mean a lot of people don't even use a toothbrush they use that uh, the neem branch instead so oh, how I mean, are we most of the people are using toothbrushes that cost what 10 rupees nothing yeah. more than that and the wooden ones would be upwards of 250 i believe yeah so that's the point so it's about consumer choice choices it's also about creating awareness about those consumer choices and we should be very careful about demonizing any sector whether that's private sector public mm. sector every sector has its negatives uh civil society included because uh, then you'll just pass the buck na we'll yeah. uh, demonize the, the private sector the they time. demonize the government the government demonizes the voters it's it's a loop but also just just uh, to add one thing to uh, you know what you had earlier mentioned trisha or anirudh i think one of you said that uh, these many companies are uh, creating you know 80% of the pollution what is that statistic would you uh, want to repeat that as well this once yeah 10 companies yes. 70% right yes sir 100 companies 71% global emissions yeah 100 companies 71% global emissions so if you look at that stat and this is actually you know uh, one of the ministers that was talking in uh, the fellowship who comes in as a mentor was uh, giving a very similar stat that uh, you know 100 companies uh, leading to 70% of the emissions but also if you look at india you also see that on the other side of companies which are trying to do good uh you have only about 1600 companies to be precise 1599 companies covering about 94% of the csr funds in india so contributing over 94% of the csr funds in india so you have a few companies who are doing disproportionate bad and you have another few companies who are doing disproportionate good so obviously from a linear perspective you would want some of these good companies to do more good some of these bad companies to do lesser of bad but the juice of the game is in the middle of the spectrum right. you need to uh, get all of the other companies in the middle to do a little more not not a lot but just a little more no no one other thing that i'll be interested in knowing uh, atpit about this statistic is yep. if 100 co- companies have uh, caused 71% of climate harm hmm. in their Uh, business as usual functioning. What percentage of population has used, consumed, or benefited from their products or services? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because ultimately, it's not as I said. A company is not functioning in a watertight compartment where it's just it. they're selling to somebody. Exactly. Right? And if you're buying, then how can you say that no, no, it was producing, so I bought. Otherwise, I wouldn't have bought. Well, there's a demand. Yeah. That's why there's a there's a supply. Absolutely. So. I mean, a lot of these are. That's why they are called wicked problems. So they have a chicken and egg sort of a story, and uh, the the art of policy making is really how do you uh, you know disentangle the chicken and the egg, and you know, at least have some spot where you can uh, have some intervention. So yes, sir. Very interesting perspective. I often see this study actually quoted on Twitter every time. any corporation says anything so that is why i thought i no no that, that's no trisha i must yeah i just wanted to clarify that i am absolutely in agreement with all of this i am in agreement that companies should cut down their carbon footprint arpit is as well it's yeah. just that we we cannot game the system by just going after one part of the system you need to understand how to change system dynamics by understanding supply and demand not just the supply bit of it. Yes, sir. 
absolutely so uh, what's what is the scenario about all this in india like what efforts are being taken and must be taken to spread further awareness about the urgency of this matter so uh, let me let me talk about what's happening in india uh, first of all again i already confessed that i am a climate optimist i think we'll come out of this and i think that we have the capacity and uh the guilt for having led us where we have uh, been uh, positioned at for the past 100 years uh youth engagement is increasing their environmental footprint whether they act or not is you know the free will question but at least they're conscious about it and as consciousness grows it will uh, sort of force the hand of each consumer customer denizen of this country the other thing is uh, and something that uh, arpit and i are very proud of is organizations and opportunities such as the global policy diplomacy sustainability the gpods fellowship coming up uh, which uh, which is looking at sustainability not being a siloed issue so if you want to achieve sustainability it is no longer that you know what i'll become a climate finance professional and i'll solve it no you need to understand a bit of policy you need to understand a bit of international relations you need to bit understand a bit of climate change and governance and communications and and behavior and circular economy and economy generally and social ethics all of those things need to come together and that's why the gpods fellowship has had the kind of success it has had because it is serving all of these things within one uh, paradigm of gpods right and and the fact that there are fellows coming through and fellows who are interested in understanding these aspects of sustainability of public policy of international relations is a very good indicator of how the youth is invested right so that's one thing the second thing is and this is uh, fairly controversial so i'll i'll uh, put this with the rider that this is only a reflection this is not a moral judgment on what is happening but i see over the last 10 15 years as i'm sure all of our listeners and all of you have heard as well companies are now spending more and more in advertising marketing pr for appearing to be green you know what is traditionally called as green washing now green washing is a very bad thing because you're not actually green you're not actually sustainable but you want to be perceived as being green so that people will buy you more because you'll have a good pr it's a terrible thing but being an optimist i'll give you another dimension to this green washing bit green washing is an excellent indicator of how the tides are changing if a company that has been as i said incorporated to make profits is willing to shell out a share from its profits to invest in appearing to be sustainable that means that it is invested in either at this stage appearing to be green or sustainable but that interest will then eventually once we have the governance mechanism public policy and law transcend into actually being sustainable because that's an indicator that consumers are putting to putting you on a pedestal and if you do not you do not function as a sustainable unit organization then you will have problems with the market and that is also good indicator and that's happening globally but i think that that's happening in india as well and which is a bad thing which is a good indicator right and thirdly i i do think that in terms of our governance uh, we saw uh, i think last month or a couple of months back we saw that the honorable supreme court of india uh, asked the government to respond to it on what's happening with the with the indian environmental services you know uh, that means that government judiciary all of our pillars of democracy are also channelizing new innovative thought towards governing environment and these are all good signs whether we require more governance less governance that's a topic altogether uh, that needs to be discussed differently separately but these are all good indications is what i say 
capacity building through GPods as a fellowship, uh, which is so well respected now because of its intersections of policy, diplomacy, and sustainability. And its uh, certificate holds so much value because of that. And capacity building uh, at the high school level, at the graduation level, all of these things are happening, which I think are excellent indicators. India also, you need to be conscious that it is said that almost 30% of all climate impacts will be suffered by the Indian subcontinent. So India has a major stake in what happens in the climate change debate. And that's why we, we need to be even more uh, forthcoming and proactive in doing something about this issue. Absolutely. In fact, I was just uh, about to comment on one of the things that Ishan said that See, uh, the, the difference is that we are in one way or the other moving towards sustainability and all the indications in the government, they show that we have to be, uh, you know, moving towards that. And first, it'll be a lot of rhetoric. First, it'll be a lot of talk. But eventually, once the talk has happened, then you have to perform on some of the parameters that you've talked about. And some of those solutions, as Ishan said, no, uh, the Indian Environmental Services, I remember that, uh, you know, uh, there was this uh, panel discussion happening and uh, around COVID and I was part of that and one of the uh, members in the panel had proposed that let's have an Indian Health Services on the basis of an IAS. And I uh, said that I absolutely don't agree with that idea because, you know, uh, the IAS as a bureaucracy and bureaucracies all over the world uh, especially if they become permanent bureaucracies, uh, such as what we have in India, they become slow, they become onerous, they become extremely inefficient. And another thing that they do is that they uh, create a disconnect or sort of a disempowerment amongst the civil society to do something about that issue. Because if, you know, let's say the Indian Health Services is working on health, then why should we bother about doing anything about it? Or if the Indian Administrative Services is working on administration, why should we bother? So a lot of times, you know, where the ideas are right or wrong, those are the places where folks like us who are researching on uh, issues around governance uh, come in. So, uh, but at the same time, yes, a lot of action is going to take place in the sustainability field. And at GPODs, we absolutely believe in the fact that all jobs in the future, whether you're in finance, whether you're in security, whether you're in, uh, you know, uh, computer programming, all jobs are sustainability jobs at the end of the day. Because eventually what you're trying to do, eventually the whole of the humankind has been not from right now, but from many millennia as we've been trying to understand how do we survive given the environment. Okay. And how do we, uh, you know, live sustainably. So all jobs are going to be about that uh, in the future as well. I'm like, uh, I, as an outside observer, thinks that there is a lot of confusion in the national conversation on climate change. Like, a clear and expressive narrative can help cut to the clutter. Like, as you rightly mentioned that people, the, the corporations as well as the government have started to think about it and talks are taking place. But these talks and talks are only taking place and the action is getting delayed. Like, that's what I, I think that is happening. Like, obviously, talks are happening. That's, that's a really good thing. But only talks are happening is also not a good thing. So I think talks to action uh, are yeah. on a 100 to 1 ratio right now. And I think with time, uh, and that's what happens for any policy that, you know, uh, for most of the beginning phase of a policy, it's 99% talk, 1% action. And then you move to another phase where it's probably 80% talk, 20% action. But after you've reached a tipping point, you're eventually going to see uh, a space where, you know, very quickly after 80%, you'll see 50% talk in action, then 20% talk in most of the action. But it's a long curve that you need to go in. And that's exactly one of the challenges with climate change that, you know, if we have everything but time. So on a, on a scale of time, we need more action. And I agree with, uh, with Arpit that that is the uh, usual trajectory. But as Anirudh says, that there has to be more action. We also have to be mindful of the fact that, you know, we are talking about governance of a country that is about 1.3 billion people 
full and you know diversity and and distinctions and uh, so many other challenges of demographics and and meteorology and i wish it were uh, it were easier for us to implement policies but we are a very proud nation of uh, diverse folks and diverse topographies and demographies and and we need to uh, make sure that we look at it as a strength and make sure that we can find effective mechanisms to cater to the 1.4 1.3 billion people in a way that it is effective and on a scale of time quick as well and i and i think that when when the research of these climate scientists when coupled with the decision making it could make the ratio of talk to action a little better and uh, and better as well as little faster to happen right, right. that's the hope absolutely yeah that's the hope yeah sir so diving a little into policy making at what stage of policy making does a uh, climate oriented policies face the most opposition which creates this you know 90% talk and only 10% action thing so you're saying at what stage does it face the most opposition well uh, at i think it depends on how you're framing the policy so there are two ways of looking at it number one is that if you know there are one sorts of policies where uh, you're taking from one and giving to another okay these are called redistributive policies and these policies uh, are typically the ones where you find one very staunch opponent from whom you are taking and one party at least who is a very staunch supporter a supporter to whom you are giving okay that's one form of policy and here opposition and support sort of balance out okay uh then you have certain policies where you are taking from many and giving it to a few okay and those could be for good and bad purposes both Uh, for a good purpose you could take you know let's say uh, a swachh bharat says from everybody so you're taking from many and you're giving it to a few uh, only the people who might just uh, you know uh, benefit from uh, you know uh, more contracts and drainages more contracts and uh, rebuilding uh, you know some of the urban ecosystems etc okay so in many cases in such cases you're taking from many and giving it to a few and in these policies you'll find some supporters uh and no opposition most of the, uh most of the time if uh you know procedurally you are able to show some evidence uh of progress and then there are a, a few policies where you're taking from a few and giving it out to many and those policies would typically find a lot of opposition that you know and typically uh, climate change uh you know if you're talking about air pollution and you're talking about uh you know some of these things they fall into that category where you're taking from a few and those few are the corporations who are uh, you know uh, leading to the pollution who are causing that pollution and giving to many which means that this policy benefits the public at large all right so you have a few very staunch opponents of this particular policy but everybody is benefiting a little bit there is no concentrated benefit on anybody so these policies obviously find a lot more uh, resistance and for these policies you need policy entrepreneurs uh, you need people who can champion and who can create stakeholders which become a counterweight to the opponents uh, so uh, any policy which is being opposed by let's say certain companies or certain interest groups uh, which benefits the environment should also have a counter group of supporting that policy extremely staunchly okay and converting that uh into various uh benefits whether electorally or otherwise so i think if you design or if you frame a policy in a manner uh in where you know you have fewer opponents and greater number of uh, concentrated support groups i think those are the policies that typically uh see a passage i must uh, i must also uh, add in addition to what arpit said uh, that one of the studies uh, that i was going through recently uh, had a conservative estimate of 3 750 billion dollars per annum given away to the fossil fuel industry in subsidies right now we need to understand subsidies subsidies is where the government is giving a discount uh, simplistically uh, and 
government is not making the money from itself mostly you know it is taxing the citizens and hence you are funding the subsidies given to the fossil fuel industry so you are breathing the air that is polluted by the fossil fuel industry spending more in your healthcare and also making sure that the fossil fuel industry is keep on fun functioning the way it does the reason why i'm mentioning this in the context of what uh, trisha asked and arpit said is because there are very very large interests where the subsidies themselves i'm not talking about the overall revenue or the turnover or the profits that these companies make i'm saying the subsidies itself are itself are to the tune of 785 billion dollars so imagine how much would a company be willing to lobby willing to put in this conversation at the ideation stage at the execution stage at uh, the policy framing stage to uh, not have a policy that you know makes them obsolete yes sir and uh, like what what do you think needs to be done with immediate effect and what changes do you think that needs to be secured in the long run in order to tackle the climate change so uh, okay i know that ishan has to leave quickly so uh, we can probably comment on this uh, before we close the discussion but in the long run if you ask me a lot of it is about how you frame policies uh, policy narratives and we've talked a little bit about that the other important thing uh, that we've talked about is that you know how do you align different stakeholders so you need to have some stakeholders whose sole job is to align all of the stakeholders and uh, those become extremely extremely important and in the longer run i think that you know uh, education of people about public policy about sustainable development i think those become really really relevant because if you are going in with a mental model of uh, you know uh, being more sustainable as an individual you are likely to make those policies at the larger scale and you're likely to uh, think of more efficient designs uh, keeping that larger scale in mind yeah yeah i i just echo what arpit said it it is it has to be a holistic approach it has to be uh, you know i i often draw an analogy of how mathematics is involved in everything from you know computers to everything tech and everything that we use use in our everyday life and similarly you need to think of sustainability as not a distinct discipline that is divorced from other disciplines so sustainability has to be seen as the mother of all uh, social sciences at some point as well uh, which has impact on every other thing that you do every other policy and law and tech and financial governance model that you uh, venture into Yes, sir. So, our target audience comprises of students mainly. So, what would be your message that you would send to budding scientists with regard to the discussion we have had today? I would like both of you to provide some parting words. Sure. So, uh, first of all, guys. Uh, Uh, the fact that you've stayed on this podcast for so long means that you're driven towards climate change and sustainability so uh, that's a step in the right direction the second thing is do not preclude yourself of policy making or law making or if you're from either of these uh, systems then from climate science because ultimately you need to understand the problem and to understand the problem you need to really delve into all the aspects of the problem uh, so take up uh, courses readings books uh, again fellowships such as the gpos fellowship that give you that understanding about sustainability from all of its dimensions about public policy from all of its dimensions the second thing is much like a democracy every vote is important similarly in sustainability every voice every action every little you know decision to not litter or reducing my waste 
uh, reducing your waste is as important. One of my uh, professors, when I asked him which is the cleanest form of energy, had told me uh, that the cleanest form of energy is the one that you do not use. So reducing our usage is, is as much uh, of an important lesson to take as it is uh, to get others to reduce. But again, it starts at you and if everyone starts reduces their usage, we will have a lower peak of our electricity consumption, for example, which means that we do not have to run those thermal power plants that we are fighting against uh, for a decade now. So again, there are, uh, it's, it's about you. This is, this is your life at stake and your children's and grandchildren's and parents' and grandparents' lives at stake. And uh, whether or not you want to believe it or face it, but the future of humanity rests on you. Absolutely. Uh, well, absolutely, I'd echo what Ishan said. And uh, I think that, you know, uh, a message to future scientists or, uh, you know, anybody uh, who's working in the field of sustainable development is that you need to understand that the solutions don't exclusively lie in one particular field. You could be, uh, you know, working as a scientist, you could be working as a policymaker, you could be working as a politician, uh, you could be working as a grassroots activist, and even, uh, you know, a poet or, a, or an artist and still have a great impact on sustainability. And in fact, you would need all of these, uh, you could have the best of the science and we are seeing it right now, just because we may not have the best of the narrators of the of those stories. We are not seeing as much policy action on this. Okay, or uh, no, you may be uh, the best of the policy makers, but if you don't find the right politicians to align people around your policy, your policy is never going to see the light of day. So the idea over here is that you need to build a talent pool which is committed towards the idea and is also diversified enough uh, to uh, you know cooperate around the various facets which are needed for uh, you know, meaningful policy action to take place. And we would also have to be uh, you know, uh, permissive and understand of the fact that a lot of times our best case scenario, a scientist might think that this is exactly what uh, things should look like, may not be possible. And that's where you would need to sit down with uh, the other stakeholders and see what works out uh, the best for everybody. And that's a complex thing to do, but uh, that's the only way. Yes, sir. We totally agree with you that it, it is only through a two-way communication and relationship building that effective partnerships can be formed and that would help us in the short run, short run as well as the long run. Absolutely. With that, uh, I think we would wrap up our discussions. Thank you so much to, to both of you for taking time to join us. I'm sure that um, our listeners will leave with much food for thought. Thank you so much, guys. Thank, Thank you, you guys. so much. Sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.